Most of us in healthcare are warm, caring people who are committed to keeping our patients safe and doing no harm. But there are some among us who do the unthinkable and betray our noble profession. On this podcast, we like to shine a light on the good and the bad. Each week, I'll be joined by another healthcare professional, and together we'll dive into these stories while chatting about nursing and healthcare along the way. I'm Tina, a registered nurse, and this is Good Nurse, Bad Nurse. Welcome back to Good Nurse, Bad Nurse. So happy that you have decided to listen to this podcast. Hopefully you'll stick around and listen to our stories. We have a couple of amazing stories for you. I cannot wait to get into this Bad Nurse story. It is so incredibly perplexing and fascinating, but really sad and tragic at the same time. So I will warn you, it's a little graphic, um, parts of it. I don't usually get too graphic, as you know, but um, just to kind of give you a little trigger warning there. And also, when we get into the good nurse story, I, you know, guys know I love talking about doctors, <laughs> but in a good way, in a good way. So this week is... I, don't, I didn't know where that was going to, now. <laughs> Sorry know. to interrupt. You're like, what is she doing? <laughs> what is she doing to me? <laughs> no, I brought you on here to sabotage you. No, it's we've had a good doctor story this week. And not only do I have a good doctor story, but I have the doctor on that's going to actually guest host with me. So I'm so excited to have Dr. Raj Sundar. So thank you so much for coming on. I can't wait to get to talk about you and the podcast that you're doing and all the the ways that you're working to affect change in healthcare. So tell everybody a little bit about your podcast. Yeah, thanks for having me, Tina. I'm excited to do this story. Uh, People don't know what's going to come and and what's going to come right now. So my name is Raj Sundar, and I'm the host of a podcast called Healthcare for Humans, which for the podcast, the goal is to educate clinicians, nurses, everybody who's on healthcare on how to care for culturally diverse communities. Because we've always we've all been in that situation where something doesn't feel right. Either there's a gap between what the patient understands and what we're trying to communicate. Or we know, I think we were talking about this, we know they're going to walk out out of the hospital not taking their medications or not really understanding what they're supposed to be doing or what healthcare and healing looks like for them after something traumatic has happened to them, right? Heart attack, strokes, whatever it is. And so much of my podcast is exploring the values and beliefs of different communities and what it means to meet them where they are so we can really care for them in the way they want to be cared for and ultimately create moments of connection for ourselves too because we talk about burnout a lot too, right? I I know you've talked about that in other episodes and the systems we're in. And I think those moments of connection help a lot to get through the day for us too. Well, I'm excited to get to talk about that. I know that I, I talk about cultural diversity quite a bit on the podcast as well. So I'm super excited to get to delve into that a little bit more and talk about the importance of it and why we need to always be working on that and trying to improve ourselves in that area in healthcare. But for now, we need to get started with this bad nurse story. I promised you guys it's going to be quite a story. So why not go ahead and dig into it? 
Did you know that you don't have to go all across the country to be a travel nurse? You certainly can, but you don't have to. I literally took an assignment that's an hour and a half away from my house, and I love it. I can stay in a hotel room if I want, or I can drive back home. So it's the best of both worlds for me. For my next assignment, we're going to get a cabin in the mountains that's about two hours from our house, so it'll really be like a little getaway. Also, one of my really good friends is going with me so we can share expenses. You guys, even if you're just a little curious about travel nursing, go to trustedhealth.com forward slash good nurse and fill out a profile so you can see what kind of jobs are out there and what they pay. Go to trustedhealth.com forward slash good nurse and fill out a profile. This is the story of Jim and Sandra Melger. The Melgers lived in a quiet neighborhood in Houston, Texas. They were married for over 30 years. Jim, or his name was Jamie, but it went by Jim. Jim Melger was born in Guatemala, but immigrated to the States when he was three years old. His family settled in Houston where Sandra's family resided. Jim would later meet Sandra at school and became quickly enamored with her. Sandra described him as a goofball and found his t- terrible jokes charming. After weeks of asking Sandra out on a date, she finally agreed and the couple went ice skating. The rest, the couple claimed, was history. So they married in 1980. Jim pursued a career in computer programming while Sandra operated her own medical and billing business. They were both successful in their careers, but preferred a low-key lifestyle. Together, they had one daughter, Elizabeth, or she goes by Liz. They were a close-knit family, and their daughter thought that her parents were made for each other. They enjoyed traveling as a family. They were big outdoor enthusiasts. However, their outdoor excursions did have to fall by the wayside as Sandra developed a laundry list of health conditions like lupus, hyperthyroidism, hip replacement, seizures. Her daughter Liz was especially concerned about her mother's seizures. She had bore witness to her mother seizing and described her episodes as violent. I'm sure that was scary. I've witnessed my son having a a seizure one time. As a nurse who has actually seen patients having seizures in the hospital, you would think I would know how to act appropriately. But when my 10-year-old son completely locked up and became stiff as a board and was seizing, I and his eyes were rolling back in his head, I didn't even I didn't even know what was happening. I was compl- I was so floored and horrified. So I cannot imagine as a daughter how she must have felt. You know, the seizures are scary. Yeah, yeah. I, I think of being a doctor and a parent. Although you do things at work when you're trying to care for your own family, it's such a different experience, right? Because you're you're not unbiased. <laughs> you're as biased as you can be. And there's a saying with at least doctors that you either overtreat or undertreat. You never actually do the right treatment for the family member because your thinking isn't clear. But especially when you're witnessing something like a seizure, right? It's so painful to experience that um, from a different level when it's somebody you know. Absolutely. I I catch myself, obviously people, and as nurses, people do this to nurses too, will text me, call me, ask me questions, uh, asking me for medical advice. I always say, I'm not a doctor. I don't, I'm not a doctor or a nurse practitioner. Or any, I, that's not me. I look for signs and symptoms and then I tell them what's going on. But you know, at the same time, obviously, I have had to learn a lot of stuff in nursing school. I learned a lot working at, at the hospital, taking care of people. So I do know, I feel like I know a lot, but just enough, just barely enough to be destructive. <laughs> so I don't, I don't trust myself. I don't know why anybody would trust me. I, you know what I'm saying? Like, I yeah, yeah, yeah. don't ask Patina. me. 
they text me too and i say when they when people text me and i say you should see your doctor (laughs) and it's not me yeah (laughs) really let me let me get your insurance so i can bill you no the last thing that i would want to do would be to give somebody the wrong advice i did recently have a very close friend that feels like a family member that did this to me while i was on vacation (laughs) you know say that her spouse was having basically stroke-like symptoms. She didn't say that, but she was just like, he's really confused. He's saying things. And I'm like, go to the emergency room. This is so easy. This is a no-brainer. I got this one. I have no problem. Go to the ER. Go to this particular ER. They are the best stroke hospital in the area. That's where you want to go. Did they listen? Didn't listen. He was driving the stinking car. I wanted to just like, why do people ask me questions? They're not going to listen. Anyway, ended up, he was having a TIA. And that's what I told her. I was like, it could be a TIA, but I mean, that can be a precursor for, you know, bigger, you know, strokes. So definitely need to go. And it turned out everything's fine, no deficits, but that was scary. And I was just like, I don't even want to hear about it if you're not going to, if you're not going to, because now I'm just worried to death. You're out here on your own having these symptoms. So yeah, I'm telling you. It's scary sometimes being being in healthcare and knowing things and you know a little too much and it just scares you to death. Jim was also affected by his wife's medical conditions and sought various treatment methods. He was trying to help her, you know, cures, trying to alleviate her suffering. It's very difficult, obviously, to watch a loved one suffer like that. He also acted as a dutiful chauffeur when she was uncomfortable driving and fearful obviously of having a seizure while you're operating a vehicle. She depended on him for everyday activities and tasks. So on December the 22nd in 2012, they went out to officially celebrate their 32nd wedding anniversary. So they went out to dinner, their favorite restaurant, and then afterwards had a little made a little pit stop to CVS to get some mixed drink mixes before going home. They took their drinks into the jacuzzi in the bathroom. In the video that I watched, there was like a Dateline episode on this story. There were strawberries and whipped cream and everything. You could just tell it was sort of like a romantic evening. I don't know. That's one of the things that played around, played over and over in my head as, as it got, as the details start emerging on this, that I kept going back to that. Like, how do we get from there to there? So I don't know. Things happen, right? So with his uh, retirement rapidly approaching, they you know, just kind of dreaming about traveling. They chatted about their plans for the next day. His family was supposed to be coming over to celebrate, help them celebrate their anniversary, kind of catch up before Christmas. They had four small dogs and they apparently started barking. So this is going to be a very key element in this whole case, the barking dogs. I don't know about you, (laughs) Raj, but I have dogs. I have two dogs. And if they bark, I hear it. Like my radar immediately comes up. Not for me. I can't stand the thought of my neighbors. I'm like, nope, go get them. Bring them in. So I understand. Like I felt this when they were like, the dogs start, start barking. And she said, the way that it, I guess the initial story went is that he was concerned that the barking would disturb their neighbors. And so about after 15, or, or so he left to go get them, he was going to bring them inside and put them into the studio, okay, in the den. That makes sense. Four dogs. That's a lot of barking, mm-hmm. right? It is. <laughs> and they're, you know, little dogs and little dogs, they can carry a, a pretty big punch, you know, when it comes to, I don't know, they, 
they can be loud. <laughs> so after 15 minutes, she's still in the jacuzzi, but he still had not returned. The dogs had quietened down, so she just assumed he got them, you know, put them into the study. And so she decided to get out of the jacuzzi and get dressed. So there are two closets in their bedroom. They have two walk-in closets. And so she went into one of the closets to get dressed. That is where everything kind of goes dark in the story. And so much happened. So much obviously went on after this. But really, there's just, there's really nothing but speculation. And then you have, well, really there's speculation because... The next morning, the next detail that we have is the next morning at 7 a.m. So one of their neighbors noticed that the couple's garage door is wide open. Have you ever left your garage door open all night and get up in the morning and be like, oh, I'm just laying here waiting for an axe murderer to come in? (laughs) I know. (laughs) It has happened to us. And one of our neighbors thankfully closed the garage door for us by, you know, you can like hop over, but then that also made us worry that other people could do that. So (laughs) you have to be careful. Oh yeah. That's so scary. (laughs) They could hop over and then close it behind them. Yeah. So that happened to them, or at least the, the garage door is open, whether it was accidental or on purpose, the garage door was open and the neighbors just sort of made a mental note of that. They did find it odd because they didn't really see anyone enter or exit the garage throughout the day, that day, you know, the day after um, this incident happened. Jim's family came to the house that uh, for dinner that evening about 4.30 and his brother, Herman, knocked on the door, but no one answered. And the family noted that Jim's truck was in the driveway and then looked through the garage door and they saw Sandra's car. So of course they're thinking if both of their vehicles are here, why are they not answering the door? So Jim's brother decided to just go ahead and go on through the door through the open garage. The the door going from the garage into the house was unlocked, which I've been told before uh, from safety, like from law enforcement stuff, you should always lock that door going from your garage into your house. They're like, that's an entry door. That's an entryway door. You should keep it. And I, ever it's since part then, of our I'm nightly like, routine. My wife yes. always asks, did you lock the doors? And that gotta door lock is one the of door. them. Yeah, it's got to be locked. I ask my son that all the time. Did you lock that door downstairs? It goes into the garage. So it goes from the garage. The, like, I have to make sure I insist on that being locked. So I obviously doing all these true crime stories, my mind goes everywhere. So I know. Uh, do you, you don't have sponsorship for those home security cams yet? Like <laughs> ring, you know, <laughs> it's like a good plug of like, remember, be nice. I to know I should. I have like multiple of those, if you can believe that. I, I really do. We have like different brands because I'm like, what if one of them doesn't work? And so I'm so paranoid. I know. Well, people will hear the story and then maybe you'll want one because there's a lot of missing elements. You're like, what happened? I know, I know. So the family is obviously their concern. So Jim comes around, unlocks the door from the inside and allows the rest of the family to come through. He said whenever they got into the door or into the, you know, actually into the living room, they said they were met with this sort of stuffy and heavy silence. And then when they called again, the couple's dogs must have heard them and they started to bark. So the daughter, Herman's daughter, who was there with him, remembered saying to her father that just if something doesn't feel right. I mean, really, you've got both vehicles outside. You've got the dogs barking. They've knocked multiple times. They're in there now, obviously, calling for them and not hearing. It's just like complete silence. So eerie, kind of scary feeling. 
So they go through the home, continuously calling out for the couple as they go through room to room. Herman heard Sandra's muffled voice coming from upstairs and ran through to the master bedroom to the in-suite bathroom. There was a small closet near the jacuzzi. As we said earlier, that's where she went in to change clothes. It was being blocked with a chair. There was a chair that was, you know, how you can put a chair up under the door handle and kind of block somebody from coming in. Been known to do that in hotel rooms when I was too scared. I was afraid to go to sleep as a travel nurse and I'm by myself. I get so scared. Oh my gosh, I'm a big chicken. So I'm learning a lot about you, Tina. So, but that, I know, I'm just scared to death all the time. So, so there is a chair. There's a chair up under the door handle of this closet, blocking the closet. And for those of you who are listening to this going, why is she laughing? This is a terrible, tragic story. It is. And I, if you've never listened to my podcast, you probably don't know this about me, but laughter is a coping mechanism. It's terrible. I will laugh at the most inappropriate times because that's what I tend to do. Let's just laugh and pretend like nothing's wrong. I promise you, this is a terrible, tragic story, and I feel horrible for everybody concerned in this story. Let me just assure you of that. But what Herman found when he opened the closet door, I mean, after he removed that chair, is his sister-in-law, Sandra, laying on the floor of the closet, bound by two scarves. He hastily tried to remove the bindings, but the knots were too tight. I think that's also significant, the fact that he was struggling to remove those the, the knots from the scarves. He needed a pair of scissors to cut through the scarves. So after freeing Sandra, he discovered his brother, Jim, a short distance away in the master bedroom closet. He was not clothed, badly beaten, and had been stabbed multiple times. The walls and the furniture were covered in blood. Jim's legs were bound with a telephone cord, and rope was loosely wrapped around his chest. What a horrific, horrific scene. This is his brother to come upon. I mean, I feel so bad for them. So authorities were called, obviously, to the couple's residence, and just two minutes after they got there, they pronounced him dead. He had obviously, he had been dead for a while. He had more than 50 total injuries and was covered in defensive wounds. He had tried to fight off his assailant. So in addition to the 31 knife wounds, his skull had been bludgeoned. Sandra, through tears, tried to explain that she just didn't remember anything before or after about 1 a.m. She said she could not remember anything after that. They found the house in com uh, complete disarray, drawers pulled open, jewelry boxes pilfered through, um, a wallet and purse were strewn across the bed. Liz said that TV and prescription pills were missing from the home. However, the police report did not indicate that anything was missing or stolen. And I feel like that's going to be a very, very important detail as well, because it's a discrepancy from what from what Liz, the daughter, not Sandra, and I mean, Sandra, yes, but, but the daughter. And you have to remember, this is her father. It's not just her mother that's being accused. Her father is dead. Okay. So, and I'm saying this because I just want everyone to kind of keep an open mind because it is not easy to keep an open mind in this story. Let me just tell you. So inside the jacuzzi, remember they were in the jacuzzi the, the night before, there was a white blouse and a kitchen knife. And they did decide that that was the, the murder weapon. They also found Jim's loaded gun in the closet where he was. Some of these details, Raj, are very just confusing. 
it was confusing and I was always trying to categorize it. Is this a red herring? Like this isn't actually important or a distraction because of you do this a lot, you know, and there's a podcast called Serial that I had listened to where every episode you were hearing something new and you had to make sense of it if that was relevant or completely irrelevant and distraction, mm-hmm. right? And in this case, we haven't finished it yet. I'm waiting anxiously to finish it because I'm trying to put it all together. But it seems like you should trust Liz, right? Who do you trust? And Liz is a trustworthy source because you have to then write note is the police evidence trustworthy and are mm-hmm. they taking and taking good notes and writing down everything that's happening or are they biased for some reason right because throughout the whole story again i'm trying to answer to myself who is trustworthy <laughs> right you you have to ask ask yourself these questions i've done enough of these stories to know that the police are not perfect and many many times i I love law enforcement. I'm not anti-law enforcement or anything like that. But I'm also, I also don't have blinders on. I'm not just blindly loyal to a whole group of people. I know that they're they, just like healthcare providers, health healthcare professionals, there are bad seeds in every profession. There are people who just are human and make mistakes. They don't intend to, but they just do. And being in a profession, being in a specific profession doesn't make you immune to mistakes, right? We all know that. <laughs> Just because you carry that tag of doctor, nurse, police, right? You can still make mistakes and miss something. You absolutely can. And the thing is, you know, I've talked about this a lot too. You, do you want people doing these these roles, these very important roles that not a lot of people want to do? We are in desperate need of doctors in this country. I work as a transfer coordinator right now. And I can tell you that it is not easy finding doctors. I mean, any kind of doctor, but I mean, literally name any kind of doctor. It is, you are, there is a shortage all the way across the board. But when you get into specific specialties, it's nearly impossible in certain areas. I mean, you people will have to travel hundreds and hundreds of miles. So do you want to really arrest people for making a mistake that led to harm or, or patient death? Really? I mean, there's civil liability, and I before the arresting thing happened, I was I questioned that, but I just now I'm just concerned about putting people in jail um, for making legitimate mistakes. You know tr- what I call good faith errors. Police officers are I feel like kind of in that same realm. Like we need them, we need law enforcement, so we should be good to them, right? I feel like we should try to protect them and. I feel like we should pay them more so they will want to stay and then they can protect their family. They can, they can provide for their families. And so when I say that, because I don't want to come across like I am being negative toward law enforcement when I say things like this, but the reality is they, they do make mistakes and it happens more than you would think that these police reports are not accurate. You can't you just take them as the gospel truth. And we can be completely generous with that too, right? Just there says healthcare professionals are strained under a system of too many things to do too quickly without enough support. That's probably true for a lot of professions, right? And this could be true too, right? I would say it is for attorneys 
having especially public defenders having too many cases to have to work on that they aren't able to sift through all of the evidence and really come up with a really good plan for their client. Prosecutors too, I'm sure. So here we are. They there's obviously this discrepancy between what whether there was something taken and whether there was not. And the daughter is saying absolutely there were things missing from the house. And it was medication. And I think that's gonna to me, I that's a point that I want to talk about later as we kind of get through this story. So Sandra said that her body was aching as if she had had a seizure, a feeling she knew all too well. She was examined by paramedics, but no injuries were found on her head. There were also no significant marks or abrasions to her hands or arms. And police found this unusual given how tightly and how long, uh, supposedly, Sandra's Sandra was tied up. They were just kind of looking for those telltale signs of you know, the ligature marks and didn't see that. So she was taken to the hospital for further evaluation, but she quickly discharged herself. So I guess she left against medical advice. That was a nice way of saying discharged herself. <laughs> I know. <laughs> discharged herself. Afterwards, afterwards, she was taken to the sheriff's office to provide an official statement. So one thing that I found interesting in that, as I was watching that video, is that she did go right to the police station, right out of the hospital. So I thought I found that significant as well, because if you were guilty of a crime, it seems like you'd want to stay in the hospital as long as you possibly could and avoid having to talk about what happened. But that's just uh, me. Unless you're a mastermind and planned out every <laughs> single step, right? Tina? Yes, that is true. <laughs> I mean, every single one, every single step. So police suspected that something was off about her account of events. She said she couldn't remember anything after she had gotten out of the jacuzzi to get dressed and that she didn't hear or see anything that happened to her husband. She had no idea that he had been killed. So investigators found it unusual that Sandra and Jim could hear the dogs barking over the jacuzzi, but she couldn't hear him being viciously attacked. She explained the dogs were just outside their bathroom window and the couple had installed a doggy door for the dogs to access their home, but sometimes they had to open the door and coax them inside. So she's just sort of trying to explain maybe why she would have heard them. But the, here's the thing. As I'm watching this, someone could ask you what something that happened, some event, and you, you start trying to recount what happened. And then you say one thing, and then you go, actually, wait a minute. I'm not sure that that is what happened. I mean, our memories are not perfect under the best of circumstances. No. And have you heard about how it's true for all of us, the more we recall memories, the more we modify them. Like we take out a memory stored somewhere in the back of our head, and then we say it out loud. We have some missing pieces, so we make it up as we go. We don't even realize it. And then it gets stored as this new version back there. So every time we recount it, it changes a little bit because we're just not great recorders of what's happening in our world, especially when there's something traumatic or huge that happens, right? Because there's so much adrenaline, emotions, it's hard to remember everything. You remember some parts of it, some parts are hazy. Mm -hmm. 
I would think that in this situation, it's. I think the extremes make it difficult. Um, if you if if you're just kind of going through, I don't know, just sitting there and and you're not really thinking about whether the dogs are barking or what happened or who rem- who heard it first or as far as she, she could remember. She, you know, looking back, she said it could have been that he said that he heard the dog, the barking dogs, and she just said, "Oh, yeah, they're," you know. So then, when she's retelling the story, we heard the dogs barking, and he got up, you know. So, in reality, maybe she didn't even hear them, you know. So it's, it's yeah, kind of maybe hard he to, just heard it. Yep, yeah, exactly. It's hard to pick apart someone's words like that, especially in a in a situation like this. But that's I'm just trying to be open-minded about these, you know, about the story and not just completely jump to, oh, well, you know, because I feel like that's what you have to do in these stories. You can't just assume. I wouldn't want someone to do that to me. I know. We're, we're bringing ourselves in here. <laughs> like, don't give me, give me some grace. <laughs> I know. It's what you, I feel like you should do, do unto others as you would have, right? That's what you're supposed to do. After she went into the closet to get dressed, she suspected that she was either hit on the head, and this is her trying to surmise what happened. Either she was hit on the head or had a seizure and blacked out. So she's thinking either someone walked in and hit her on the back of the head and she just, that knocked her out and then they tied her up or they could have hit her on the head and she caused her to have a seizure. It could definitely happen. Or just the trauma if she had been approached by an assailant and she it it triggered a seizure the tr- the trauma of just vi- seeing a complete stranger that obviously intended to do her harm if that triggered a seizure is kind of what she said if she started having a seizure right in front of this assailant who knows what they're thinking especially if they had hit her over the head it, what if they had hit her over the head and she starts acting like that maybe they would have just been like she's dying i guess i killed her or she she so but they went ahead and tied her up just in case i don't know yeah, I it makes it seem like she didn't have a seizure. Something had happened and they must have assumed they didn't really mean to let's say like murder somebody. They were just there to steal. They look at this. You're already hearing my biased version of the story. We got to finish it. <laughs> um, <laughs> but but that would lead to the what we hear as uh what everybody saw at the end which was mm-hmm. behind in the closet tied up. Right? Exactly. We all know that when we're taking any medication or supplement, dosage matters, and it's important to take enough to get the desired result. For example, only taking a 10 milligram Tylenol might not help with your headache. Well, the same is true for CBD. If you try a low dose CBD product, you may not feel anything, but it's not the CBD's fault. The dosage is the problem. This is why CBD Stat only makes high dose CBD products that actually work. And now their products are getting even stronger. CBD Stat is happy to announce that they're launching a new extra strength version of its highly popular topical products that have 7,500 milligrams of CBD. This new strength will by far maintain CBD Stat's status as the most powerful CBD product line on the market. More CBD means it's more effective in helping everyone tackle daily aches and pains. CBD Stat sent me a box of these new products and I already knew it was going to work because I've been using it for my neck pain and foot pain, but I can definitely tell the difference in this new strength and I'm really excited to get to tell you guys about it. And on top of these new higher strength products, they're also dropping prices across the board on all their products to make CBD Stat not only the most effective on the market, but also the most 
affordable. And don't forget, all you healthcare workers out there get a special additional discount to help keep you strong. Just head to cbdstat.care forward slash healthcare and find your new secret weapon. That's cbdstat.care forward slash healthcare. When she came to, she realized she was bound trapped in the closet. She said she called for help, but believed she passed out again from an, epile- uh, from an epileptic seizure. She attempted to recount the events from, the, from earlier in the day. She's trying to explain what happened. And she remarked that the only thing that was unusual was that a car seemed to follow them home from CVS. She said she often cautioned Jim not to slow down retaliation when drivers tailgated him because it could be dangerous. However, once the car turned the opposite direction in the neighborhood, she paid the situation no additional thought. Investigators still found her account of events dubious. Does that make it sound like there's a history of retaliation, right? Like, has there been other incidents, mm-hmm. right? Yeah. Why would she have said that? I mean, it almost seems like there it's was, not a common thing we say to each other, right? Like, I don't don't think just slow down. Like, you just say it for no reason. Just yeah. letting you know, not that you've ever done this before or ever even thought about it, but just in case, I'll just let you know it's dangerous to do. I think it's easy for people to be tempted, you know, when provoked in, in traffic to retaliate in some way against people who they feel has somehow, I don't know, imposed on them. It's, it happens a lot. I think we call it road rage. So unfortunately, it's quite common. And I think she's probably thinking if, it, if somebody was following them, he was slowing down because it, it was irritating him. And she's thinking, you're just going to provoke them because they they weren't trying to go around him. They were just slowing down with him. And so she's getting scared. Like, don't they're going to follow us home, you know? I, I get that. I totally get that. That's how I. That's how my mind works. <laughs> well, there's a lot of bad stories of road rage too, right? Of mm. the consequences of retaliation and response in that situation. Yes, very popular new Netflix series called, series called Beef. That's on. I was right just now. watching that. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yep. That exactly. Is a, that's the... my gosh. It's got. It almost has a hundred percent on Rotten Tomatoes. Like. If everybody that watches that series just absolutely loves it, it's it's shocking, but yeah, it does talk about the things that can happen with road rage. So <laughs> yeah, it's quite a series. Let me just say uh, that, that's for another episode. <laughs> it is, yeah. <laughs> Investigators reviewed video footage from a neighbor's outdoor video cameras that overlooked the Melgers' residence. No one was seen accessing the home through the garage. They surmised that perhaps the couple had a disagreement and Sandra had reacted violently. Sandra vehemently, vehemently dismissed the investigators' accusations. None of the neighbors initially reported anything suspicious that evening. And so, you know, neighbors are usually, that's, there's a reason they're, they're called nosy neighbors. Neighbors usually will, <laughs> they will tell everything that's going on. They have no problem. So, it might be significant that they didn't hear anything. They didn't hear any barking dogs. They didn't, I mean, they noticed the, the garage door open. They did notice that. They didn't offer to go and close it like your neighbor did for them. <laughs> Maybe it's good that the, they didn't, though. In the hierarchy of evidence, it seems the camera should be trustworthy, right? This question of which do you use as a foundation? The camera should see everything, technically, you would think. So do you have one of these cameras that's outside that that kind of as if it sees motion, it starts recording? 
I don't. Do you? I do. Of course I do. <laughs> I can just <laughs> <laughs> Tell me how, so, how accurate are those? I can tell you that they are not 100% accurate. You, I, I can, because I've had instances before where I wanted to go back and see something. I know someone walked up to the door and it just completely missed it. I'm just like, of all the times you catch me going to the mailbox, but you don't. Yeah. So, I, know. I have follow-up no. questions. Whether this story has a motion detector camera or like 24-7, like CCTV, right? Which will be even more. It seems like, yeah, that's a good question. If it was like a business, like a convenience store or a department store, something like that, I think those are continuous and then they record over themselves after certain, like so many days. But usually with these home uh, cameras that are just like the ring camera or just one that's on the side of the corner of the house, they are just motion detected. They don't necessarily just sit there and record, they, you know, endlessly. They're motion activated when they see something, then they go, they start recording. So I don't think they're 100% accurate. Yeah, Tina, you really, you know, make me realize my mistakes, my over-reliance on this technology. <laughs> yeah, don't do it. Don't do it. Don't ever have over-reliance on technology. That's why I use multiple brands. See, I don't trust them. <laughs> So like I said, they didn't hear the dogs barking. Investigators are just going, I don't really think this was a home invasion. They said there was simply no evidence of a forced entry and that the ransacked home, guess what, appeared to be staged. I mean, I see this all the time. This I, I've done so many of these stories. It's like, people, if you don't learn anything else from this podcast, if you decide to ever stage a robbery, let me just tell you, if you're going to ransack a house, then ransack the house like you're really looking for something. If you think you're just going to open drawers and that police are going to walk in and go, oh, an open drawer, but nothing was moved. Yeah, they're immediately going to think the opposite. You'd rather just don't open the drawers if you're not, if you're just going to halfway do it. Like if you're going to do something, do it right. I'm not in the business of, of helping people, you know, commit crimes, but for crying out loud. <laughs> <laughs> oh, gosh. <laughs> so that's the thing. The drawers are open, but apparently it just didn't look like someone was really looking for valuables. You know, it just kind of, they were like, mm, it just kind of really seems like nothing's really missing. There are television, you know, ex I guess expensive things that are there that to them, well, if I was going to rob this house, I would take that television or I would take this gaming system or, you know, that sort of thing. And that that was their take on it. Wait, the TV TV was missing, right? Am I wrong? I mean, I thought that wasn't. Was oh, it, it wasn't. Okay. I thought they determined that. I forgot what you know Liz what? said. Liz said. Liz something. said there was a, a TV missing. That is right. But the pol the police did not note that there, that it was missing. You're exactly right. Absolutely, quality control check here. Gosh, good job. <laughs> I, I got you, Tina. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you. So. They did find it odd that the murder weapon, a knife that determined to come from their own kitchen. This is another thing that I've, I've learned so many things about committing crimes <laughs> doing these shows. So if you're going to kill somebody in your house, if you use your own knife that came from your, like right out of your little chopping block thing, that's kind of going to be a little bit of a dead giveaway, or they're at least going to jump to a conclusion. Because most of the time, if someone comes into your house to do you harm, they're going to guess what? bring a weapon with them. They're not going to walk in there with no weapon and then go, oh, I darn it, I left my weapon at home. Maybe there's something here I can use. So th here's the thing, though. This is, I 
I lo- so I always like to play devil's advocate and like try to imagine like, is there a scenario in which somebody would go into someone's house without a weapon? Well, there is this, there is a thing called armed robbery and then, you know, burglary or robbery. I've learned this. I've, I've talked to prosecutors before. So one reason to not bring a weapon with you or use a weapon in the commission of a crime like this is because you don't want it to be armed because it, the, the, the consequences are vastly different. So it could be that they were just really wanting to go in there and steal something and get out. I love how you refute your own ideas. It makes it so I easy know. for me. <laughs> this is how I go. I'm just have like two people in my brain, like this other person over here going, here's what could happen. But then the other person's going, no, no, no. <laughs> A balanced argument in your head, huh? <laughs> right. I'm not, good. I'm not a very good decision maker, though, because I just end up in the middle somewhere all the time. Now, interestingly enough, think about this. She is barricaded into this closet with a chair wedged up under the door knob. And so how? How could she get, how could she herself be inside of the closet and the chair, the door is closed and the chair is wedged up under the door handle? They actually argued that she could have easily pulled the chair against the door using a bath mat or pillowcase from inside the closet. I know. I, I'm sure one of your listeners is going to try that to see if it's possible, which I know. it does not seem like it would be. <laughs> I was like, I couldn't, could it actually happen? Uh huh. I don't can think do it. so. You can. You think so? You can. You're you confident. Can. You're I confident. Are- a hundred percent. You can okay. do it. It has to be the chair obviously has to be just the right height because the if you think about it, where the chair has to go up under the doorknob, if it's too tall, that's it's it's gonna fall down. But if it's tall enough that you can kind of put the back two legs on the pillowcase or whatever, and then you get in beside the behind the door, and then as you're closing the door, you're pulling the bath mat and it's pulling the legs across the chair is sliding as the door is closing and they actually show this on the dateline they show them doing it so you can't really argue with it you can't it's argue with that possible. state but it does say that it has to be premeditated right like you have to have mm-hmm. the right chair like have everything available and just just noting that that's true i mean really that is very malicious if if this if this is exactly you know this actually is the way it happened now one thing to remember is that they they do think that this probably happened in the wee hours of the morning and they weren't found until late in the day the next day so she had a long time if she got if they got in some kind of altercation and she accidentally killed him or killed him out of rage or whatever happened she had a long time to think about how she's going to cover it up yeah, we got to look at the Google search results, mm-hmm. right? <laughs> See exactly. What, what she was looking up. How do yeah, I if, get if myself? If I ever into get accused of anything, that is what's going to sink me. <laughs> I, and you name it, they are going to be able to find it in my Google because I'm always looking for these stories. I'm just every time I do it, I'm always like, oh boy, <laughs> look, <laughs> they're going to put me under the prison because <laughs> I mean, come on. Investigators also noted that neither Jim nor Sandra had ligature marks and concluded that Jim had been tied up after he was dead. 
They portrayed Sandra as the mastermind of an elaborate scheme. At one point during the interrogation, they asked her to take a polygraph test, but she declined as she was, quote, a nervous wreck. She thought that the results would falsely incriminate her. Despite this and her requesting a lawyer, investigators advised her that they still wanted her to meet with the professional polygrapher. She complied with their request, but elected not to undergo the polygraph at that time because she was shaky. Detectives were quick to attack her reasoning for failing to submit the polygraph, and they attempted to accuse accuse her of murdering her husband. Sandra, however, continued to deny the accusation and maintained her innocence. She insisted that her husband's murderer was still roaming free. Despite her denials, investigators were sure they had the person responsible for Jim's death. They requested to file murder charges against Sandra, but the district attorney declined due to insufficient evidence at the time. I always find that interesting because, I mean, really, the evidence is always there. So somebody just dropped the ball if they do that and then later on come back. So I'm just like, that evidence was there from the very beginning. Yeah, you're like, what happened? What happened? It's somebody's fault. So testing from the scene slowly started to come back and no other blood was found on the scene but Jim's. However, there was there were DNA profiles, both male and female, that were discovered on some surfaces in the home, including the scarves used to restrain Sandra. The profiles did not match anyone known to be in the home, including Jim's family. The DNA profiles were not fully tested to see who they belonged to. I feel like that was a mistake. Like, obviously, right? If, if, I mean, if, if your life is, at, you know, on the line there, I don't know why, even if the authorities didn't test it, I don't know why her defense wouldn't have requested that it be tested. But Yeah, I don't know the process. It just seems like such an oversight in many ways. Mm-hmm. Um, I'm not sure what happened, right? Yeah. So many follow-up questions. Every time I read the paragraph over mm-hmm. again, and this one specifically, I'm like, what? <laughs> Somebody should I have know. asked that to be tested. How did that happen? So someone called in a tip with a few details later. They said that they saw a man behaving strangely in the neighborhood the night of the murder. They claimed that it was Chad Sullivan, a convicted thief who recently who was recently released from jail on assault charges. Police went to his home to speak to him, but Sullivan never opened the door. He was never questioned. Come on. This is it's like, oh well, we tried. What? But does this actually happen? It just seems like, oh, hey, he didn't answer the door. Oh, well. (laughs) (laughs) It does happen. And in the case that you're talking about, that serial podcast, that, that that was one of the things that happened is someone, there was a witness out there, you know, so absolutely. The police drop the ball all the time. They just decide that a witness is immaterial. They just, just, you know, discount it or just don't know about it. And maybe the witness is sitting there thinking, I don't know why they don't come talk to me, you know, as as in the serial case, like, I know something, why don't they come and ask me, but nobody ever asks. I'm always, when I hear people say that in these cases, I'm always thinking, why didn't you go to them? Why would you? But they're just like, well, I just assume they had what they needed. And they, so they put all their faith in the police, I guess, that they're perfect. I also watch so many long form true detective shows, or mm-hmm. detective shows. They're so thorough in that. Obviously, sometimes they miss it, but like every suspect matters and they're mm-hmm. going down all these roads. And clearly, not every case has the kind of resources, or again, I don't know what's happening that <laughs> you're not chasing down every witness. But you'll hear the end of the story of what happened. 
Yeah. Well, Sandra's seizures often impacted her memory. And a few days after her husband's murder, she starts recalling details. So you can see why the police would be suspicious. Like, oh, things are starting to come back now, you know. She said that now she remembered an unknown Hispanic woman standing behind in the closet. And she spoke to someone else that she could not see. Investigators were not convinced and continued to build a case against her. So in the summer of 2014, she was indicted on first-degree murder charges. Her defense argued that there was no concrete evidence against her and Sandra lacked a motive. She and her husband were happily married. Her defense team maintained that there uh, was a home invasion and that the assailant or assailants entered the home through the open garage door and interior door that wasn't locked. Sandra was physically incapable, they said, of overpowering her husband. They also brought to question the unknown DNA that was never fully tested. They argued that this should be enough to cast doubt that Sandra was the murderer. They also advised that the lead investigator was forced to resign after backdating a warrant on an unrelated murder case. That doesn't sound great for the team. (laughs) No, it doesn't. So see, there are people in all professions who do things. And I also... Um, this sort of thing kind of relates to healthcare as well, because documentation is so important. We did a story just a couple of weeks ago. It may not even be out yet. No, I'm thinking about it. Maybe I shouldn't say this. But we did a story about a a neurosurgeon who changed the... That that episode's out. (laughs) Is it out? I don't even know. I listened to it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. He changed the the consent consent form, right? I still yeah, can't believe afterwards. it. I just can't. <laughs> yeah. It's so impossible to believe. I can't believe it. No, I just think I would never believe. I would, if someone just told me that and I didn't know there was this whole case and it, it, absolutely, it absolutely happened, I would have said 100% there is no way you'll find a doctor or a nurse. Maybe a nurse, but no, I'm kidding. I don't think you could find, I don't know. There's just, Everybody knows you can't do that. You cannot change a consent form after the patient signed it. That's ridiculous. I can't believe he would be like, he. not only did he change it, but he made a mistake and then went back to change it to match what he did. It's the worst thing you could possibly do. Oh, anyway, sorry. I can't, I couldn't get over it then. And I still can't get over it. But that's kind of what this is about, you know, documentation. This police officer, and I think, you know, these investigators are so afraid they're going to somehow the evidence is going to, you know, get messed up and they believe in this person's guilt and they don't want this one little thing to, to mess everything up. So yeah, they try to, because think about it, if that, if they hadn't gotten the warrant when they were supposed to, there's a lot of evidence there that could have been thrown out. Yeah, exactly. And they're, it's, what, what do they say? Does, do the means justify the ends? <laughs> they really believe like this is it and we don't want to have something documented that's going to sabotage the whole thing because we know she did it or this happened and they're convinced. Right. Exactly. So they're, if they're convinced, if they're convinced somebody's guilty, they don't want to see them walk because of a mistake that was made. So they're trying to hide it. Bad idea. Bad idea. Prosecutors argued that Sandra had plenty of motive to kill her husband. They said that Sandra was unhappy in her marriage and wanted a divorce, but was unable to obtain one for fear of being shunned from her church. Her family and friends dismissed this theory and proclaimed that Sandra and Jim were happily married. She never 
mentioned wanting to obtain a divorce. Prosecutors argued that Sandra had a second motive, the substantial $250,000 life insurance policy she was slated to receive upon her husband's death. They argued that she staged the scene to look like a home invasion. That doesn't sound like a whole lot of money to me to be worth killing someone and risking your own, you know, risking your freedom. I, I don't, I'm just not buying that as a motive. So a crime scene re- uh, recreator echoed the prosecutor's argument. She stated that nothing pointed to a home invasion and that it was possible that Sandra had tied Jim up before the murder, staged the scene, and then tied herself up. There were no signs of forced entry and that a candle on the nightstand was still lit. This indicated to her that there was no struggle near the closet where Jim was killed. Mm. I mean, that's... I, I'm going to have to give her that one. <laughs> if there's a lit candle that close and it, there is a huge struggle. I'm going to have to say that's a little fishy. So, I mean, really, she also pointed out that Jim's gun was found with him in the closet. That bothered me too. I, why? Why would the gun, why would that gun be there? It just doesn't really make a whole lot of sense. I couldn't, honestly, I couldn't, th- I couldn't really think of a scenario either way. If she was guilty or if if it was a home invasion, why would that gun be there? It was a home invasion, and he, Jim noted something was happening. He went to grab his gun, and he got overpowered. The gun fell down, and they stabbed him. Does that no? Does that fit? I'm thinking out loud. If this could happen, I mean, maybe I think that's possible. Um, I don't know that it makes sense that if she staged it, she would have left the gun laying there beside him. I don't know. Why would you even? Yeah, exactly. Yeah. So in August of 2017, the jury came back with a verdict on the second day of deliberations. They found Sandra to be guilty of murder. She was sentenced to 27 years in prison. Jim and Sandra's family have stood beside, uh, behind Sandra and her claims of innocence. Sandra's defense team filed an uh, appeal shortly after her conviction, but it was denied. This matters a lot, not just Sandra's mm-hmm. family, but Jim's yes. family. Mm-hmm. That means a yeah. lot. I mean, think about that. His family, if if there was anything going on between them as far as their marriage, that they weren't happy or that, you know, that there was any indication whatsoever that she wanted a divorce, don't you think somebody in that family would have known, would have sensed something? And then if something like this happens, they would have suspected her. Yep, exactly. Yeah. Instead, they not only did they stand behind her, they were adamant that there is no possible way, absolutely no possible way that she did this to him. I mean, that really is probably the thing that makes me want to go through this and figure out how it all could have happened with it being a home invasion. Because when you look at all the evidence, it is easy to think that she did it. it. It's, you know there really isn't a whole lot of evidence that there was an intruder. And so, but when I think about these family members, her daughter, his daughter, believing that her mother, and having absolutely no reservation about saying, absolutely not, my mother did not do this. I really have a hard time um, believing that she did this. I really do. I don't know. What do you think? (laughs) 
You don't have no, to say was, anything. You don't have to. I, I, well, no, I was going to see if you're going to talk yourself out of it. If I, I felt like wait long enough, I'm going to hear the other side of you're Tina. Like, you know? She's going to come. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. That, <laughs> the devil's advocate's going to come out yeah. any uh, minute now. I, I think there's just too many things that don't fit the story or the narrative that Sandra did it. Because I was trying to wrap my head around this whole story and thinking about, is there like an approach to this when you're trying to parse out which evidence is accurate, which to trust. You know, people I think talk about often the motive, the means to do what you're intending to do and the opportunity to do it. The motive, as you said, like life insurance, it doesn't seem like the motive for her. When, when you go back all the way to the beginning of the story, Jim cared for her so much, like to all her, I think, medical appointments, and she was struggling with a lot of medical. And it sounds like they were having an anniversary dinner. It just seems like Jim was actually providing for her a lot and supporting her a lot. That to sabotage all that for $250,000 doesn't seem like a big enough motive for me. And the motive of marital conflict, like the their own parents don't think so. There's people from the church don't think so, unless they were really secretive about it. <laughs> Uh, that nobody knew, which seems surprising. And even the daughter didn't know. I mean, the kids know a lot about their parents, right? So the daughter didn't mention it either. I mean, it was her own dad, right? It's like, I doubt she was t- trying to take sides with her, uh, Sandra or the mom. So it didn't seem like the motive was great. The second was like the means to do it of Sandra overpowering this person and then calculating how to hide and I don't know, just the whole elaborate scheme seems like somebody who had really thought about this for a long time and thought this was the way out to get what she wants. But again, I don't know what she wanted. And the opportunity, maybe, I guess it was the middle of the night, nobody was there. But just the first two didn't really make sense to me. So I'll be like, okay, it's a home invasion. And then I'm going to talk myself out of a home invasion too. <laughs> but but who, I don't know where they came in through, the garage, who knows, I don't know. There was, as you said, there was like fingerprints on the scarf that nobody tested. So somebody, something's going on there. And it was such a violent crime. Like, it seems like if it was Sandra, they're like, there's so much rage there. Like, again, I didn't hear that story. I didn't hear that. It, it, it makes more sense that somebody did it to defend themselves i don't it doesn't make sense it's like a lot of it's like 30 or 50 injuries right tina i don't remember something a lot right exactly 31 i think knife wounds and then other defensive but i you know that they came up with some really crazy story the prosecution did about and i didn't even bother to mention this because it's uh, to me it is so far-fetched their variation of what happened that she somehow lured him um, with, with some idea of, of, of sex and doing some weird kinky thing. Like, and he was sitting in a chair and she got behind him and that she just basically slit his throat with that knife with, it kind of came up behind him and, and he had no idea it was coming is what, why would he have defensive wounds on him if that happened? And it yeah. just really, the yeah, his, his injuries don't really match that. And there wasn't a lot, to me, there wasn't a lot of evidence there that matched that scenario either. And so if she, I just, her being a mastermind and really premeditating this whole thing out absolutely does not fit. And there's no way if I was a juror and had all this information that I would think that happened. Now, the only other option if she did it would be that they got in a fight and she 
grabbed the knife and stabbed him. The problem is the only blood is in the bedroom. So she just happened to have a kitchen knife in the bedroom. That's exactly what I was saying. (laughs) Yeah, yeah, ran into the kitchen to get the knife, ran back into the bedroom. He just stood there and waited (laughs) for her. I mean, so that makes no sense. Yeah, just that whole story. And I, you know, this happened in Serial too, where the problem is, okay, Sandra didn't do it, but then who did? And if you don't have an alternative, then the default person gets stuck, unfortunately, because there's no other suspect. So even if this person is kind of a weak suspect, there's just no alternative. And um, it unfortunately ends up being a bad situation for the person who is one of the only suspects. Yeah, I I, I know. And I I worry that that's what happened in this case, that sometimes the prosecution and the investigators, they get, um, they just get these blinders on and get focused in on one person. They get focused in on the person that they can build the strongest case against, not necessarily the person who is guilty. Yeah, exactly. And I have no idea what the what their profession is like, but that's what it seems at least, right? Like, I, because you equate the strongest case to what actually happened, which, you know, it's not always true just because there's so many uh, gray areas and missing pieces of evidence. Right. And so many times it is the person's significant other, you know, that ha- that does the crime. I talked about that plenty of times. It definitely happens. So that's why they go there first. And then the person is right there at the crime scene and they don't have really any injuries. It's suspicious. And if you see hundreds of cases and it's often the person closest Mm -hmm. to you, you need to have like a lot of evidence to prove it otherwise, just from probability wise, I'm sure from what they're seeing, right? Well, I, f- I feel I feel bad for Sander. Honestly, I feel bad for Sander and I feel bad for Liz because another thing to consider is she was taking a lot of pain medicine and I want to say some to- some sort of seizure medication that also is can be mind altering in some way. And so I feel like a lot of seizure medicine are like that, so. like phenobarbital or something like. She was taking something like that that would be valuable to someone who would, you know, take that kind of medication or sell it or whatever. So also definitely narcotics. She she had narcotics. And I know, I live in Appalachia, East Tennessee. It is nothing for someone that wants that medication to break into your house just for that. And when I say they have tunnel vision, they don't care about anything else in that house. They don't care about televisions or game boxes. They want, and so really, if you were trying, if you were looking for medication, you're probably going to go right to, you're going to open a drawer and either you you can feel around there, either there's pills in pill bottles or not. It's not hard to kind of determine, you know, whether, and if you just killed someone and just tied somebody, uh, someone else up in a closet, you don't, you don't feel like you have a whole lot of time, you know, so they it's probably. Like desperation, t- right? Mm-hmm. I'm thinking they probably could have followed them home from CVS and think, you know, thinking uh, they, it, there is there was a ex fiance or 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 ex husband or ex fiance or something of their daughter that had apparently some issues that leads them to believe that it could that that person could be a suspect and then the you know who followed them home from CVS so there were some there were some people but it was just never considered so 
In 2018, the famed district attorney Kathleen Zellner announced that she would be taking the case to help Sandra. She's helped exonerate 19 people who were wrongfully convicted. Sandra's defense team submitted another appeal, but it was once again denied. In late 2022, the Innocence Project of Texas announced that they would also be picking up Sandra's case to attempt over to overturn her conviction. Sandra has been interviewed several times in prison, and she still maintains a position of innocence. A lot of people so believe her, it, right? I know. I tend to. I just got to say that. I mean, yeah. I, I, do, I feel like I don't. I don't. It's not just that I feel like, you know, it's ambiguous. I really do think that it's ridiculous to think that it's anything other than a home invasion. But that that's just me. So I have to tell you guys about an experience I had with a nursing student. So, you know, I've been doing travel nursing. Well, this hospital where I'm at has a lot of LPN students doing their clinicals there. So one of them was following me around one day and she noticed my stethoscope. And of course, y'all know the Echo Technology Company that sponsors our podcast. They teamed up with Littman to make the stethoscopes, to beat all stethoscopes, the 3M Littman Core Digital Stethoscope. And this is the one that I use now. So she said, oh my gosh, I've been wanting to try one of those. So of course I let her use it and she just could not stop talking about it for the rest of the shift. It was so cute. She was like, you know, I can't hear anything with my normal stethoscope because I have tinnitus. And so she was so excited because she could actually hear what heart sounds were supposed to sound like. She said, I'm going to ask for one of these for graduation. And I was like, yeah, you definitely should. So just so you know, the echo technology that makes the stethoscope so amazing. Uh, you can enable it with a flip of a switch. You can turn it on and off. It has active noise cancellation up to 40 times amplification, wireless auscultation using Bluetooth technology. It connects with Echo's free app and software so that you can visualize, record, share, live stream, analyze heart sounds, lung sounds, and whatever body sounds you want to listen to. So you can go to echohealth.com and use the promo code GNBN to get $50 off your order. And that's Echo is spelled E-K-O, by the way. So it's echohealth.com and use the GNBN promo code to get $50 off your order. I also wanted to remind you that if you're interested in travel nursing, to go to trustedhealth.com forward slash good nurse and fill out a profile so you can see what kind of jobs are out there. And you can also see what they pay, the stipend, the hourly rate, all of that. I'm a travel nurse now with Trusted Health, and I absolutely love working for them. So go to trustedhealth.com, be sure and put forward slash good nurse so that they'll know that we sent you there and fill out a profile today. So I guess we can get into the good nurse portion of our show. So Raj, tell us about, she talked about it a little bit at the beginning of the podcast, but tell us a little bit more about why you decided to start this podcast and what, how do you think it's helping people? What, what do you, what change do you hope to affect from this? Yeah, good question, Tina. You know, I'm a primary care physician, so I work in clinics a lot in the outpatient setting. I've done some inpatient work and continue to do some there. But so many times when I was attempting to build relationships, long-term relationships, you know, that's what you talk about, a primary care doctor, I felt like it was hardest to build relationships with people that were truly, quote unquote, different from me, right? From different countries, different communities, just had a different background or worldview that I didn't understand. And for me specifically, it was immigrant refugee communities, asylum-seeking communities, because of what they had been through. And there were just so many moments where I felt like there's something missing between us. 
and you know you know this too like we all only get like 15 minutes per visit and there's not enough time to dig into somebody's history their community's history and i don't want to necessarily put the burden on them to explain everything to me because then they have to explain it to every single person they meet as well right whether that's a native hawaiian patient or somebody from somalia somebody from china even india right because india is diverse there's different regions and I just felt like I wasn't building the relationships that I wanted to. And I was probably making mistakes. We talked about this that I didn't even know. And then I was being worried. I was worried about making mistakes that was also contributing to this distance that I was feeling with the patients that I was caring for. And I think everybody's had some education on cultural competence, quote unquote. Tina, did you get some education on that? People have heard that term, right? All the time. <laughs> Every year we, we have to do the, you know, yeah. the, but the, thing the, was, the classes. and Yeah, and the modules, but that wasn't helping me, right? Ultimately, I went up back to my patient and was like, okay, what I what did I learn from those modules? Listen. And I'm like, okay, great. I'll listen. <laughs> like, right? Like there wasn't anything specific I should be doing differently or what I should be really doing. And you do this podcast, so I don't, and people are who are listening like podcasts, so I don't need to sell you on podcasts but the podcast i just found so valuable as a medium because it it's it can be long form it can be in depth it can actually center other people's voices and you can use stories and conversations to explain a concept right and i think you do that really well tina with these long narratives right and uh, we're talking about our personal experiences and all of this and i felt that medium was so much better to talk about culture because people can reflect on their own culture, right? And how complex it is, how difficult to explain it is, how subconscious it can be. And you, from being from Eastern Tennessee, probably have a specific culture, right? Uh, in that area that probably a lot of people around the country don't really understand. And I wanted to use podcasting as a medium to, as I said, one, center other people's voices. So like go to community leaders or people in the community or historians being like, tell me like the history of this community like what have they suffered through why are they here and then talk to a community leader tell me like how is healthcare falling short like tell me what it means for healthcare to be better for you and then a clinician to talk about like what does it mean caring for the community you've done this for so long like what have you learned and what does that mean and what can you teach others and i feel like this process has been really impactful for me because now with patients from different communities that i interact with i have specific things that i can uh, do with them or connect with them that's helped me in my practice and this is like so abstract, so I like to make it specific. And, you know, here where I'm in the Pacific Northwest here in the West Coast, there's actually a large Native Hawaiian population. And I was interviewing a community leader there. And one example she she provided to me was, you know, what we really don't like is that we go to a clinic or we are in the hospital and people love talking to us about their vacation Hawaii. <laughs> That's the first thing they talk about because they want to connect with us, talk about some place they just went to. And it's already cringeworthy, but people do that one. But also she was like, listen, you know, we left Hawaii because we couldn't afford to live there because of tourism. And now we're here and we can't even visit our family back there. And here you are like coming and talking about a vacation because you think you're going to build a report with us. And then I got to be vulnerable with you, talk to you about all the things that are bothering me. Like, there's no way I'm going to do what you're telling me to do if that's how you're starting the relationship right that kind of specificity 
is like what I was hoping for. It just helped me be a better clinician, right? And I couldn't get those from the modules and current curriculum because people were very specific because they had these specific experiences that they wanted to share in those small moments. But I also get like big things that people are hoping for as communities that we have fallen short in. Like I uh, interviewed the Khmer community, which is the community from Cambodia. We have some Cambodian refugees here too, but they had suffered through this huge thing called Khmer Rouge, which is in the part of history where there was essentially genocide of a huge population, which led people to leave that country. And they were like, you know, we suffered this large scale trauma, but then we come here and there's been no support for healing and people don't really talk about it. And we're just plugged into the healthcare system into these one-on-one -on -one consultations. And then if somebody tells us we want to, or like, you might need surgery, like this is where we go back to this trauma we've experienced. So we don't want to do it. And then people don't understand, right? So there's so much to unpack there of like, how do you create systems that actually heal people in these specific communities that I'm just learning a lot about being a better advocate for at a bigger level, but also a better clinician one-on-one. -on -one. And I'm hoping that can help other people too, because, you know, we're all in different parts of the country caring for different communities. And I think we're all seeking to care for people better. I think that's why we're in this profession. No matter how hard the systems are on us, like coming back to this idea of like, how do I help heal this person in front of me? And I have to say kudos to nurses because there's this like saying, I forget what it is, that like nurses are the one actually caring for the patients many times. Because I've been in the hospital and rounding, you know, I just see patients like 15, 20 minutes again. And there's who are in the hospital actually doing the like majority of healing in so many, many ways, right? And how do you build that connection and relationship with every single person, no matter how different they are, is something that um, I'm trying to answer, right? I haven't answered yet, but I think with each, each iteration and each conversation that I have, uh, it's making me uh, better at it. So your episodes then are conversations with diff people from different backgrounds that that basically you're just having this conversation like this, where you're pulling this this stuff out of them. So that we as you know, what I love about podcasts is you're almost like a fly on the wall, you're just listening to this conversation, and you learn so much. So is that, are you have, you have like somebody different each week from a uh, different culture or background or how does that work? Yeah, exactly. I, well, I'm still practicing medicine full time. So I try to, my episodes only two, every two weeks because it's still a sidekick. So, but every two weeks I try to have somebody of a different background. Right now, you know, I did communities. So I've done as Somali, Ethiopia, um, and then I just did the Latino community. You no, know, it's really complex. And I learned so much because uh, for all the times we hear that word, I feel like the media is so, uh, I'll say, one-dimensional in talking about um, certain aspects of immigration and when we're talking about uh, documentation, undocumented, um, just having a better understanding of that so I interact with people better. But yeah, every two weeks I do um, on a different community or a concept. So I actually also did one on something called model minority. And if people haven't heard that terminology before, it's that Asian immigrants are the best immigrants, like model immigrants, because, you know, they're high achievers, they do really well. And compared to other immigrant groups, like, you know, people who cause a lot of trouble, everybody should be like Asian immigrants. And the idea of model minority is that a lot of, uh, especially Indian Americans and Chinese Americans, hold this burden of needing to be perfect. Everybody holds this like view of perfectionism, I feel like, in medicine, but there's a cultural concept of being perfect and carry that burden. 
And I think understanding that is helpful for professionals that you're taking care of or colleagues that you're interacting with, because I think um, feeling understood is everyone's goal and understanding that piece of it can be helpful too, if that makes sense. Yeah, definitely makes sense. So I, I, I think that what you're doing is so incredibly helpful. Hopefully you'll continue to do it. So many times people start podcasts and they find out how much work it is. And then they, they do what we call pod fading. Um, oh, is there I'm terminology for it? There oh my is, gosh. I don't, people, you know, you do it well. So you know, like the goal of podcasting is to make it sound easy. Like, hey, we're just, you're, you're just gonna make like have a conversation with me. That's it, right? Yeah. <laughs> and then every week, no work at all. I know exactly. I think people don't know. Now, the goal is to seem effortless when it's really a lot of work in the back end. <laughs> but I think I've had a process. I've been doing it for uh, now a while. It was initially a hobby, just like you're saying. It's like everybody in the pand- during the pandemic, you know, got a new hobby. <laughs> and I feel like podcasting was one of them in their room, just like to. But I, uh, I actually started, I think, l- middle of last year as a hobby. But then I found how impactful it was for me and for people who are tuning in because they started telling me. So in the last four months, I've been really really systematic on building it out. So like consistency and reliability is the key, as you're saying, I do not want to be that group of pod fading, because <laughs> I know <laughs> it happens. And I'm, like, I'm, yeah. not gonna, I'm not gonna end up there. <laughs> and I hope you don't, because this is something that's so needed. Um, and I'm just really super excited that you've decided to do this. I'm really proud of you for doing it. I know it's a lot of hard work. It's not easy having these conversations with people. But um, I would I, I would imagine it probably gets easier each time because you probably, I don't know, as you learn more about people, is it helping you in your job when you as you're interacting with people? Yeah, I feel like all the time in little ways and big ways, right? Little ways. And I'll just use a specific example of, I think with the Somali community, I see kids too. And this Somali leader was like, hey, you know, the, another thing that happens in visits all the time was that doctors love complimenting our babies meaning like you know casually like your baby's super cute or something like that and you're like there's a concept of the evil eye you know a lot of cultures have that and who's saying like so many parents are like stop complimenting my baby so much because it's like you're gonna jinx it almost (laughs) so like i and not in like a malicious way it's just like you know a belief that you want your baby to be so healthy and you don't want somebody to jinx it and then actually end up getting sick uh so like stop doing that because Number one, you're it's just like kind of annoying when people keep doing that, right? So I don't do that. And it's probably something that people just kind of like shrug off, right? They're not gonna be like, hey doctor, like stop complimenting my baby or something like <laughs> they're gonna tell me that. But I don't do that now. And I think there's that less of like, oh, like it feels a little awkward. Am I missing something? I'm just saying your baby's cute. Like, what's wrong? You know, like that sense isn't there. Cause you know, I've never thought about it. And it's not true for you have to be careful about stereotypical. It's not true for all Somali parents or babies, but I'm just more intentional about it with that specific thing, right? So things like that, I think I am getting better at navigating uh and i think that's been helpful and then i think i noted this just advocating for communities because i'm hearing more about um where they're struggling and i think as clinicians specifically doctors i don't know why tina like there's so much power that's bestowed upon doctors although like there shouldn't be right and meaning like once you say you're a doctor there's like a respect to your opinion, yeah. Oh, yeah. <laughs> right? Even if you, even if you don't actually have a background or expertise on that. <laughs> but either way, I like to tell people like, 
hey, like, sometimes it feels like we don't have enough power to change all the systems that's like, actually burning us out, causing harm. But we have so much more power than many people in this world. And we need to be able to use that appropriately to make our communities better, right? And I think having these conversations and building relationships, because it's actually helped me build relationships too, because I haven't like there's an excuse for me to reach out to a community organization and a leader and be like, hey, like, let's talk about this thing. And then after you talk for two hours, I don't know if we'll be friends, Tina. It's like <laughs> in the future, it feels like we'll be friends, right? Like we just talk for two hours about something. <laughs> so uh, in that way, I think uh, it's been helpful for me too. just building relationships that can sustain me um, outside of the narrow walls of healthcare. Yeah, I mean, that's wonderful. So you guys have to go listen to his podcast now. Remind everybody, what's, what is it called? What's the name of it? Uh, it's called Healthcare for Humans. Believe it or not, that domain name was available. So wow. it's a uh, So you also healthcare. have a website? Yeah, it's at uh, healthcareforhumans.org. And it's on all the podcasting platforms too, whatever you nice. listen to it. Yeah. I love it. That's amazing. Yeah, that's good. Yeah, good nurse, bad nurse was not. We, we had to buy it. <laughs> whatever. <laughs> oh, gosh. Oh, so obviously they can find you at all the... Um, the plat the so the podcasting platforms finding you at your website are you on social media I am yeah and uh, that's all on the website too I like to not overwhelm people <laughs> of like listing all the <laughs> things you know you can be like listing ten places now it's like more and more places that you're now <laughs> yeah, yeah. Now I can't remember uh, anything because you told me too much I know I uh, I was most I'm most active on Twitter uh, at uh, K.R. Sundar. And I'm slowly building an Instagram because uh, I just love the way you can engage with Instagram and videos and short clips um, to get like highlights because I know I've, nope, everybody can listen to an hour long episode. I know some people are podcast listeners, but you want the message out there. So trying to find different ways to get communities heard, I think. Absolutely. I love it. So you have to do one on the Appalachia community at some point. Cause it's, I want to, I actually. You're going to help. But I'm telling you, it's significant. It is I want to. Maybe different. we'll have a follow-up. I, I, mostly it's dependent on who I can connect with. And maybe I'll reach out to you in the future and you can uh, give me some connections to I can talk definitely about, connect you. Yeah. To talk about like what healthcare means to them, right? I think we let down that community a lot too because, uh, because just healthcare, I feel like, is so... I don't know, myopic, <laughs> like we know what we know, and we're going to do this <laughs> kind of thing. Mm -hmm. And I think we all benefit from understanding people's perspective on that. Yeah, for sure. Well, uh, you guys, don't forget Healthcare for Humans podcast, you can go find him at his website or anywhere you listen to podcasts. And you can, of course, you can find me at goodnursebadnurse.com and all the social media places. And you can email me if you want to at tina at goodnursebadnurse.com and love to hear from you guys. And of course, I have to remind you that even if you're a bad girl or a bad boy, be a good nurse and a good doctor. 